I'm the third person to say good morning, I think. So good morning, Restoration Church. My name is Pastor Aaron. A number of new people here today, and I sound echoey, so you probably even turn me down. Can people hear me if I just kind of shout and we keep the, can you guys hear me at the back well enough? We got fans and stuff going because it's cooler outside than it is in here. When we went, the school is locked up. We're the only ones in the building for the summer. So no fresh, no fresh air circulation throughout the week. So this is the only time the doors are opened. So, um, so anyway, uh, so, uh, so thank you for your patience and stuff like that. Fans are going to be going. So try and try and pay attention the best you can. Uh, if you got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to open it. And uh, just keep a finger in Acts chapter 17, because we are going to get there eventually. We're going through a series called Who's Your One, and it's all about uh, lifting up the necessity of personal evangelism. That if you are a Christian today, one of your missions in life, one of the greatest tasks that you have as a Christian is to evangelize, or, or what we're going to look at is to preach the good news to the people around you. If you didn't know this, that's not just the pastor's job, even though back in yesteryear they may have called the pastor, what they call the pastor? The preacher? Hey, preacher? But we are all at some level called to preach, to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ. And what we've been asking throughout the week as we've been emailing out is just some testimonies. We've, we've asked you to identify that one person who in your life that you feel like this is the person God has called me to. Also last week we asked and we prayed all week for, for those people that we thought these are the people that we are called to in our life that God has called us to bless and to reach with the gospel. And uh, I've gotten a few testimonies, one really quick and I'll read so you can praise and pray for this person. Uh, I won't say their name, but they just said really quickly, they sent me an email that says, God has been moving my heart and guiding my conversation with one of my coworkers. And they just said, praise God. Can we praise God for that? Um, let's praise God for that. Um, and so there's a number of testimonies as well, just talking to you guys, how, how, how the Holy Spirit has been working in your life to identify those people that you believe, this is the person in my life that I am called to witness to. And uh, let me just, as we begin, let me open in prayer for uh, this person and for the rest of us as we can continue to consider these things. So let me pray. God in heaven, we are so thankful and grateful that we can come before you once again in worship. As we now worship and open our minds and hearts to worship in your word and what your word's going to say to us today. We've already sang awesome songs of um, amazing truth. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ. And as we're looking at in your word that we firmly believe as we're being challenged with personal evangelism that Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because your name represents what you have done for us by satisfying the justice of God the Father on the cross and then being raised again to new life so that Aaron Ottaway could have new life. I could be forgiven of the crimes of the sins that I have committed in this life. That those things are washed away and though that I could walk uh, in, a whole, in, in a completely new life following you and your mission. So God, we pray now that 
you would fill our hearts right now as we listen to you. This is from you, inspired by you. And I pray that I would just get out of the way so that Jesus Christ could have the glory this morning. So we pray for all this in your name. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you as I was considering and and preparing for this, uh, just some some moments, especially in my marital life came up. And, And maybe just not marriage, but maybe just coworkers. How many of you... If you have the experience regularly where there's miscommunication between you and a partner or a coworker, and you think you've had that conversation, does that happen to you a lot where someone comes back and you said, did we talk about this? Did I dream about this? Does that happen, husbands, wives? Yeah, yeah, probably a lot of the wives are raising their hand right now. That tends to happen in our life as well where uh, I will just say something, assume that I've had that conversation with Nikki, and she'll come back to me and say, we've never talked about this before. And I'm like, did I dream? I, f- I swear I remember this conversation. And we were just talking to uh, good friends uh, just this past week, and they were, we were reminiscing about that and, and their marriage as well. It seems to happen a lot where uh, uh, one specifically, they were talking about how there was a baby dedication at their church. They were dedicating their baby in the church, like we did a couple of weeks ago. And uh, they were dedicating their baby uh, in the service. And about two minutes before the service starts, the husband went to the wife and said, uh, so did you prepare the testimony you're supposed to give? And the wife says, uh, what do you think she's going to say? What testimony? And so now they're all freaking out, and uh, he said, well, the testimony you're supposed to give, there's a baby, baby dedication, uh, you know, I, I told you that there was a testimony, I swear we had this conversation, of course, they never had that conversation. And guys, you can learn something here, the next words out of his, mi- out of his mouth were, well, I emailed you about it, probably shouldn't, probably shouldn't go there, even if you did send the email. But often we think that we've communicated with someone the right things, what they are to do, and we actually haven't had that conversation. And this is what we're going to be talking with, who's your one, because if you can kind of deconstruct Romans 10 and put Romans 10, 14, and 15, I believe it's on the screen, this is our theme verse for the next few weeks in Romans 10, 14, and 15. Paul is calling uh, 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 his people, the Jewish people particularly, to be saved, to believe in Jesus Christ and receive new life. That is now extended into the entire world. And, uh, and, And Paul says in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And if you kind of deconstruct that passage, you can actually see uh, the, the movement of what happens in every personal evangelism relationship. There is an element of understanding that we, as Jesus was sent to the earth, and I, I invite you to listen to Brad Hooper last week, who preached an awesome message, um, listened to it on Spotify or on our website, about that we have been empowered by God as Jesus was sent to the earth by God the Father to bring the peace of God. As we as Christians have experienced the peace of God, we are all sent into the world then to, by Jesus, to also bring the peace of God to the people around us. 
But after we're sent, we are specifically sent to, what's the next step? Preach. Now that might be a little bit intimidating for you. But we are specifically sent to preach. And I would say this as we begin. You have a specific message to preach. You are sent with a specific message within a specific context. And I believe, fully believe, God has orchestrated you to be with the people you are with in order to, and this might sound like our world doesn't like this, in order to preach at them. Yeah, thank you for the amen. In order to preach at them. You are a preacher who declares good news. So you are sent into your context in which you live in order to preach. And it begs the question, before we get into our passage in Acts 17, it begs the question of how we communicate that. Because I think in our cultural context, you get things like lifestyle evangelism. You know what I mean by lifestyle evangelism? Like we're going to we're going to preach the gospel through the way that we live. And yes, there's a lot to be said. And every preacher talks about St. Francis of Assisi's quote that said, he said, once said, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. And I completely understand what he's saying is, is your message of the gospel better be backed up by a changed life. But the, the quote goes wrongly when, it, when we think we don't actually have to use words. Because the gospel is a message, whether it's written or spoken or sign language, whatever it is, the gospel's a message that is meant to be communicated. Not just by the way we live, by what we say to a person. So we're not just sent into the world to be good people, to be salt, but we're also sent into the world to be light and to actually preach about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes, and I've used that before, and it's like, I'm just going to preach the gospel through the way that I live in my life. Almost like a, like a, I'm like a gospel gusher. I just gush the, go- everything, you know, everywhere. Do you remember those old candies, the gushers you'd throw in your mouth? What a disappointment those were, right? In the commercials, it seemed like you bite down and be like, who remembers gushers? I remember, I always wanted gushers. They still sell gushers. What a disappointment. You think it's going to like gush in your mouth and then you bite down and it's just like kind of a melty candy. It's kind of disappointing. But you think you're just going to gush the gospel wherever I go. But personally for me, when I said I'm just going to preach the gospel through the way that I live, the reason I said that was not because I was serious about doing it, because I was scared to actually say anything. And I'm ashamed of that. But that's been my experience a lot. Even in, and there's a great article you can check out after, and I'm going to reference it a lot because it has a lot to do with what we're talking about today, but Elliot Clark, who was a missionary uh, in, he won't even say the country, but in a South Asian country who was Muslim-dominated, and in that country, you're allowed to be Muslim and you're allowed to be Christian, but you can't convert. So you can't, you can't be a Christian, you can't be a Muslim and convert to Christianity. You can be a, there as a Christian, and fine, you can do your Christian thing, but you can't be a Muslim and convert to a Christian. It's against the law to do that. You could be thrown in jail. You, the, person who's, the person who's trying to convert them could be killed for that kind of treason against the Muslim state. And because of that, he won't even say the country that he's a missionary in, but Elliot Clark tells about this nation where it's illegal to convert people, and he kind of challenges our notion of even in North America when we use the language we don't use the language where we preach the gospel what do we usually say even when we're telling the gospel what do we usually say we are 
sharing the gospel, right? That's not really in the scripture. And I get it if we're sharing the treasure that we have, but if it means that we're giving the gospel to willing participants, we're kind of viewing this wrongly. Because I don't know about you, but there's been few moments in my life where someone has begged me to share the gospel with them. It's just been very few and far between. Usually it involves preaching to someone who's not expecting it. Few people are begging you to do that. And it's not consistent with the New Testament or even places around the world today. And so Elliot Clark says, in a place where it's especially it's illegal to, be, to con- convert, sharing the gospel is not even a part of their vocabulary. It's not welcomed there. But guys, I hope that you are empowered today that you are commissioned to preach the gospel, to declare the good news to difficult people and in difficult situations. In the New Testament, you see Peter standing up in Pentecost, Philip preaching to an Ethiopian, Paul preaching in prison. We see people preaching, and I think we can get a lot of, uh, 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 of encouragement that it's not just the heroes of the faith that are preaching to people, but in Acts 11, verse 20, you can check this out afterwards. You can write it down. Acts 11, verse 20, it's not just the heroes of Christianity, the Pauls, the Peters, the Philips, all the P words, okay, all the all the P names, uh, uh, preaching the gospel to people. But in Acts 11, verse 20, there's unnamed people who came from Cyprus and Cyrene to, a, to the city of Antioch. It says there were some of them, they're not even named, from Cyprus and Cyrene who were coming to Antioch who spoke to the Greeks, not just the Jewish people, and they preached the Lord Jesus, and praise God for unnamed saints like you and I, who will never make it into an encyclopedia, who will never make it into a church history article, but they preached, and people got saved because of it. And I would say this, guys, preaching is not a profession. It's not just a 45-minute lecture. And even though, and I don't say this so you can feel bad for me, but this is my sixth time preaching this week, because I spoke at a camp as well. And I'm telling you, I have the easy job because I get to go over my notes, think through what I'm going to say. And as long as I stay under 45 minutes, usually people are happy with me. Then it's preaching. But preaching is often not a profession. And I would tell all of you, if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus Christ, you are a preacher. You are a preacher. Let me read, before, before, I, before I say too much more, let me read Acts, Acts chapter 17 so we get the story of where we're going to actually go. We're not going to go there right away. But Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, we get this story of Paul preaching in a city of Athens. And I think this is really applicable, especially to our context in where we are in 21st century Canada today. Paul in Athens says this, and you've sat a lot for the last 20 minutes at our sending church. We ask when we read the word that we would stand. So please stand as I read God's word. Acts chapter 16, verse 17, verse 16 to 34 says this. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So they did invite him. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim or this I preach to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as even if some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, namely Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You may have a seat. So before I jump into this, I just want to say again, you, and encourage you, and empower you, you are a preacher of the good news. Pat Davey, you call her preacher Pat, Okay. No, 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 we are not calling her preacher. No, we are not going to do that, okay? But you are a preacher. We get the word preacher from, and he, you're going to, again, every week you can impress your friends, okay, by a new word. Say, euangelizo. Euangel, no one is trying it. Euangelizo. Euangelizo, it's a very common word in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. And it literally means to preach or declare the good news. It's where we get the word, the English word, evangelize. Yeah, it's where we get the word evangelize. It literally means a messenger declaring good news. Like back in ancient days, someone would show up in the city with the news of that day. And what are the words that they would say in medieval times? They would blow, yes, they would blow a bugle and say, hear ye, hear ye, here are the morning news. They're not sitting behind a newscast. They would say, hear ye, hear ye. Kawhi just signed with the Clippers. And then everyone would boo. Probably a little too soon. Okay, too soon. <laughs> too soon. Can you imagine? The, if I've learned anything from the Kawhi free agency debacle, it's that you don't believe anything that they say beforehand. If it says report, 
colon, don't believe anything that is said, because they said everything and none of it was true. I can imagine the, hear ye, hear ye. Drake is trying to, <laughs> Drake is making, writing a new song to try to attract Kawhi to Toronto. That's what it was like every morning. You'd open up your phone and hear, see articles like that. But that's what it was. They would bring the morning news. If there was, if there was news from the capital or from the king, the only way to get it to them was to send out messengers or call them heralds to the surrounding villages, and they would speak the news to everyone. Three things from Uangalizo that we can learn of being a herald before we can apply them in Acts 17. For one, the message is clear. If you speak the message, it's clear. If we just use lifestyle evangelism, it's not really clear what we're doing. There's a lot of nice people in our world. There's a lot of loving people in our world, but it's not really clear what we're even for. So the first thing is that the message is clear. No one can say, what are you talking about? The news is not Restoration Church is going to fulfill your every need. Or that Aaron Ottaway can fulfill every need, because that is definitely not true. Our news, guys, that we're going to find out is that Jesus has conquered death itself. That's what, that's what I hear when we say, hear ye, hear ye. I'm going to remind you again, Jesus has conquered death itself. That is, our, that is our clear message that we proclaim. Not only the message is clear, the message is authoritative. When a messenger goes to a new city to preach or to proclaim news, good news, He's not, he's not making it up on the way. On horseback, he's like, what am I going to tell these people? No, he's getting it from his authority. Do you know in the Great Commission, when Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, can anyone quote that? Anyone want to impress anyone else and quote that? Since we all come to church to impress other people. Matthew 20, go therefore. Can someone say it? Go therefore. Make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's usually what we quote, but you know what comes before that is actually the most important part. Verse 17, what does it say? All, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You see, we go, we are commissioned based on the authority of our commanding officer. That's the news that we proclaim. It's authoritative. We don't make this stuff up. When we preach the good news. That's why in Acts chapter 4 verse 20, which we're not going to look there, Peter and John who are disciples of Jesus, they're told, don't preach this, don't speak this. And their appeal is, well, are we going to listen to you or listen to God? God is our authority, so we can't disobey God. This message is, author this is, message is authoritative. Another missionary who I was reading about this week was telling again, it was in a Muslim country that where it's illegal to convert, and there was a 17, especially with minors under the age of 18, but there was a 17-year-old girl who came into their life and asked the missionary, the husband and wife, to give her a Bible. And now it comes at the part where every missionary in a tough situation finds themselves, I have a decision to make. If I give them a Bible, I could actually be thrown in jail. And so they started talking, be like, well, you know, it, like, you maybe have to wait a year, or uh, we can't do this, we can't really talk about this. But they look at each other, the husband and wife, and say, you know what, this is why we're here. The stakes are high. But my authority is from God, not from this government. And they risked everything just to give her a Bible. 
And they did. The message is authoritative. Not only that, the message is praiseworthy. It's praiseworthy. It's good news. That's what Euangelizo is. We preach good news to people. Even if they don't realize it or not, we deliver the best news ever. Have you ever tried to keep a secret that's really good? I'm a terrible secret keeper. When I, you know, when, when Nikki was pregnant and no one else knew about it, I'm like, every person I talk to, I'm, I just want to tell the news. I want to give the news and I say, hear ye, hear ye. It's good news that we proclaim. It's praiseworthy. Uh, I don't know if I've told you this or not. I told it at house church. Apologies if I haven't told you yet, uh, if I've already told you. But when we were first engaged, we had a friend we, we, who took pictures of the ring. And before I could even tell my own family, you know what they did? They posted it on Facebook. I don't know if I told you that or not. I think I did. And I was so upset because I wanted to be the one to tell the news. See, the message is praiseworthy because it's good news that we proclaim. You want to be the one to tell everyone. So take a look at Acts chapter 17 and how those things play out. That's what it means to be a herald. That's what it means to, uh, uh, with the word euangelizo, that we are a messenger of good news. See how that plays out. Well, in the background, Paul, uh, all, of his, all of his pals that he's been traveling with uh, uh, stay behind in different cities. And Paul is now by himself. Imagine being by yourself. In Athens, one of the most uh, 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 biggest, most uh, um, influential cities of that day, one of the most beautiful architecturally or natural natural cities that ha- that exist at that time, and so um, so Paul is there all by himself in Athens, and look what it says in verse sixteen and seventeen. If if I could read this again, while Paul was waiting for them, his friends at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So you can imagine Paul walking around the city. And I've been to Rome. I've never been to Athens. Anyone ever been to Athens before? What? Okay, cool. We do have someone who's been to Athens. Probably a beautiful city, I'm assuming. I've walked around Rome and I'm in awe. I was in awe just walking around and, and uh, seeing all the ancient things and, and all the cool architecture. And it's an ancient thing. I don't know what I'm looking at, but it's ancient. And, uh, uh, but it's really, it's really cool to walk around an old city like that. You can imagine Paul walking around the city, but he, he is not drawn by the architectural or natural beauty. What's he drawn by? Yeah, the false religiosity that he sees all around him. And what does it say? His, his what? His spirit was provoked. It was almost like his spirit was picking a fight with what, whatever was going on. It's like, I can't ignore this anymore. His heart was broken for not only the false religiosity, but as we see with, with the idol that, that, to the unknown God, the fear that resides underneath that false religiosity, his heart breaks within him. And this is really important to understand because as we think about preaching and, and who's your one and proclaiming the gospel, preaching begins with a broken heart. That's where it starts. It doesn't start, even though in homiletics class, I took the break down the sentence structure. That's not where it starts. It starts with a broken heart toward those you are preaching to. And this is where preaching can get into trouble, where it becomes across as brash or unproud, unhumble, I almost said, proud, or speaking down. 
It probably doesn't begin with a broken heart for the ones that you're actually speaking to. But that's where it begins, with a broken heart. Let me just say this. Preaching is rarely formal. I, I get the easy job. I get to the formal preach. But you guys, when you're out in your cities, and when I'm out of church as well and with my neighbors, it's rarely formal. Most preaching will be fueled, though, not by a schedule, but by a need that comes in your life. Let me say that again. Most preaching is not fueled by a schedule, but by a need that comes into your life. Whether it's a woman who was just abandoned, who comes to you in their time of need, a man in tears because he has no direction, or a city that drifts further and further and further away from God, preaching begins, is fueled by a need. If preaching's a formal practice, then by all means, like it, let it be done by professionals. People even better than me. I mean, go on your computer and you can hear m- millions of sermons better than the one I'm about, than I'm giving you right now. But if it's fueled by, if, if, it's just, if it's just a formal thing, then by all means, let it be done by professionals who are much better than any of us in this room. But Paul begins to reason with these people out of a broken heart, not out of a rehearsed lecture. So Paul reasons with them. And I think why this passage is really good, why I picked this passage, because in verse 8 it says some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And that might not mean anything to you right now, but actually Epicureans and Stoics believe a lot of the same things that 21st century Canada does. So you think the things that come from 21st century Canada are new? No, no, like this has been recycled 2,000 years ago, okay? Epicureans were people who, uh, what they actually believed was that everything is random, The gods, if any, they're distant. And if everything's random with no purpose, then pleasure is the chief end of man. Because why not? Right? Sounds very similar to what we might call our modern-day agnostics, which most people probably, at least people my age and under, define themselves as. And I'm telling you, agnostic is just another word of Epicureans. They believe the exact same thing. If there is some God out there, they don't care. We'll never know. So, hey, why not live the way that we want to if there's no consequences? That's what Epicureans believe. Not only that, Stoics believed a little bit different. They believe that everything has meaning and purpose, but that everything is God, or God is some kind of force, or everything is, like, God is in everything that you can, he's not a person to believe in or express faith in, he's something to tap into. Kind of really similar to what we might call, like, New Ageism, which is quickly filling up the religion section at chapters, if you haven't noticed. So agnosticism and New Ageism dominated ancient day Athens. Again, this is not new, even though they call it New Ageism, Stuff gets recycled every thousand years or so, okay? We believe the same stuff over and over and over again. Now, credit to them, they're willing to listen, listen to Paul, but Paul is really speaking in the same context that you find a lot of your friends and family currently in. So if you want to maybe offend them or not, just be like, I can name what you believe, and it's called Epicureanism. They might not like that, but that's what it is. So they're willing to listen. And imagine Paul standing up in the Areopagus. They've given him a voice. They've given him a microphone. Where do you start? Where would you start? Someone has opened the door. Someone has come to you with a need. Okay? Where would you start? 
you would pray for sure. But where would you begin to tell them the gospel? Like, do you think Paul's just going to launch into with these Epicureans, these Stoics, launch into be like, well, you know, I tried to be good. I'm wait- I was waiting for the Messiah. They don't even know who the Messiah is. So where do you start? Look at it says in verse 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. See, Paul begins, and this is, I would say this, I've actually changed my words. Sorry, Sam, who did my PowerPoint. You can put it up there. It says on here, preaching, next one, preaching looks to the listener's contact. Let me even be more specific. Preaching addresses the listener's struggle. Preaching addresses the listener's struggle. You see what Paul says, I perceive, I've seen, I've experienced, I've listened to you, that in every way you're very religious. And not only that, he identifies something that they would understand to the unknown, this idol to the unknown God. If you don't know what that is, it was an idol that was dedicated essentially in case they missed a God that was out there that they hadn't actually named yet. Okay? So what they would do every year from the Areopagus is they would send out sheep, and wherever the sheep lay down to rest, they would sacrifice that sheep to that god. If the sheep didn't lay down beside an idol, guess who they would sacrifice it to? The unknown god. We must have missed one. The sheep laid down nowhere. This is where the god is, and we must have missed one. Now, we might say that's false religion, but underneath that, what is fueling that false religion? Fear. Like we're following this weird system all because we are afraid. And sometimes we get that opinion about God that what if, what if I got it wrong? Some of you might be struggling with your failing. What if I got this wrong? Or what if God is angry with me? What if I'm not doing everything that I need to do? And everyone is feeling that, whether they admit it or not. Like what, what if I get this wrong? And I would say this to you, before they listen to you, you've got to listen to them to identify their struggle. What are they struggling with in life? Before they give you a microphone to speak, you've got to listen to them to identify where are they struggling. And I would say this to everyone, the good news, the gospel is for every single context. It's hope for every context that's going on in your life. Some of you have been through some really really painful family breaks, divorces, or or abandonment, rebelliousness. Some of you have been through some things at school like bullying or, again, abandonment from friends. The gospel addresses all of those things. So never say and never give the excuse like I did that because I've never gone through this person's struggle, I have nothing to say to them. No. No. You have the hope of Jesus Christ to speak into their life no matter what anyone has gone through. And I would say, guys, take advantage of those opportunities. Paul identifies their struggle. He immediately says, you know, you guys are afraid of your own religion. Take advantage of the opportunity when someone comes to you at work, and this happens all the time, at work, 
or in your family or at your school, someone just begins to like crack the door open at what they're afraid of, what they struggle with. My wife just left me. Like, that's your opportunity. Like, don't get happy about that. Don't like smile like, yes, give them the opportunity. That's a terrible moment. But that's your opportunity to give them the hope of Jesus Christ. I remember a time when I was, um, when we were at a service station, of all places. This is why preaching is informal. Who's going to be prepared to preach at a service station? We were at a service station just at a subway eating lunch. And I was in Bible school, and my mom came to pick me up. And a couple of my brothers, I have three brothers, a couple of my brothers came just so that my mom wouldn't have to go all the way to, I went to New Brunswick to school. Why I did that, I don't know. But uh, they went all the way to New Brunswick and then came back. And on our way back, we stopped at a service station. Out of nowhere, we were just having fun, laughing. Out of nowhere, this woman comes up to us and says, I, sorry to interrupt. She had tears in her eyes. And she says, um, I see you guys are having a lot of fun. My daughter left me five years ago and won't speak to me. I don't have a family. And I see your family, and she asks us, how did you do this? How did this happen, that, you, that children and parents can have fun together and laugh? And you know what? One of the most shameful moments in my life, we never talked about Jesus. I was in Bible school. My mom was, my, my, parents were, my parents are all Christians. My brothers are all Christians. Like, that's, the, that's, that's a gift from God. That a random woman at a service station would come up to you and just open up her life, her struggle. That's the time to, who cares about how you did it? Like, we didn't read a book. <laughs> well, the Bible. So, clear, kind of we did. We didn't, read, we didn't read, like, chicken soup for the soul, and all of a sudden we had a better family experience. That's the time to give the hope of Jesus to the struggling woman. That's not the time to be like, okay, have you ever lied? Then you're a liar. You know, <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever lusted after someone? You're an adulterer. That's not what you launch into. Identify the struggle. She already knows she's broken. You don't even have to go. Give her the hope of Jesus Christ. And I'm ashamed to say we didn't do that. We fluffed off some... Christian answer. Guys, those are the opportunities for you to speak into people's lives that are gifts from God and take advantage of them. But preaching addresses the listener's struggle. You can see Paul addresses the listener's struggle, and I, I would love to identify all these things. We're just going to fly through this, though, in Paul's sermon that he preaches. So he identifies the struggle, and look what it says in verse 24. He says to that unknown God, you may not know it, but there's actually a God who you are trying to find that is out there in verse 24 the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth doesn't live in temples you've gotten this wrong it doesn't he doesn't live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything so Paul identifies this struggle that you're having God is the maker of all things and then he says in verse 26 he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He's saying God is the maker, and not only that, he wants to have a relationship with you if you would so find him. 
Then he says in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, clearly referring to Jesus, whom he has appointed. See, God is now revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ by a man, not a force to tap into, but an actual man that walked among us and, and died and was, rose, and, and was raised again, as he concludes. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I would love to point everything out in there. Maybe we'll do it in a future sermon. But Paul goes from, I've identified the struggle. God is the maker. God's leading people to himself. God is revealed in Jesus Christ, and it's accomplished. We have hope because he has actually defeated death in the resurrection. Preaching addresses the listener's struggle, but always ends up Preaching always leads to Jesus' resurrection. That's the hope that you leave with people. It's not just judgment, it's the resurrection that we preach, that we give hope to. I would say it's not preaching if it doesn't get there. It's probably just judgment. Because we preach good news. Jesus has defeated death and he wants you a part of his, he wants to be in relationship with you. Preaching always leads to Jesus' resurrection. It's what you have been missing in your life, what Jesus has done for you. This is the hope that we offer you. This is what we, when we say, we, we declare, hear ye, hear ye, sin and death has been defeated. And I would say to you here, those of you, I'm, and I'm not under own qualms that all of you might be Christians or maybe you're not. Uh, I would say the same thing to you here. What we offer at Restoration Church is not that we're going to make your life we're not, we're not going to offer a whole bunch of things to like make your life a whole bunch better. We believe the power of Jesus Christ does that because he has risen from the dead. That's the hope that we offer you today. And we believe that your life can actually be changed because of that. Those of you who maybe you haven't taken that step yet, um, I would love to talk to you after the service so that we can begin the process of, of, of seeing you grow and grow together as a church and fall in love more deeply and deeply and deeply with Jesus Christ and with each other. We would love to be a part of that with you. So talk to me after, and I would love to share more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But our hope that we offer is, the G, is Jesus' resurrection. And let me say this. This is my announcement. Usually I save them for the end, so I'm going to say it now. Okay, so tune in. Here's my announcement. In two weeks, uh, we have our monthly house church. And uh, usually we do it at the end of the month, we're going to do it in two weeks, um, on the 21st. So write that down if you plan to come to house church, okay? No one's writing this down, so put it in your phone or whatever. House church, 21st. We are going to our house. We would love for those of you who have taken that step or those of you who are thinking about it, we would love to actually baptize you on that day, Okay? If you have not taken that step of baptism yet, please talk to me afterwards. It's a day when we can celebrate what Jesus has done through your life. We'd love to baptize you, and we're a church plant, so um, it's going to be really informal, and we're going to do it in my cool-down hot tub, okay? So in our backyard, okay? So um, if you have not taken that step of baptism, I want you to talk to me afterwards, and, and if that's something you want to do, We'd love to talk with you about what that means, okay? If we don't have baptism, that's fine. We're just going to hang out and have lunch and celebrate 
after the service, but it's going to be at noon right after our service on July the 21st. Write it down, okay? Write it down in your calendar. July 21st, in two weeks, house church. Now you're going to say to your friends, I had to go because the speaker yelled at me to come. So um, preaching always leads to Jesus' resurrection. It's the hope that we proclaim it preach to people. As we close, three things. Elliot Clark, in his, in his article, as you're reading it, you check it out on Gospel Coalition. It's by Elliot Clark. Check it out afterwards. Three things I'm going to leave you with that you can apply right now in your life as you're like, how do I go out and preach this gospel? What are the things that I need to do? Well, other than what we've already looked at in Acts chapter 17. Three things. These are, for, these are not mine. These are from Elliot Clark. First one is this, and this is coming from someone where it's very difficult to preach. Okay, so if you think it's really difficult for our context, it's really difficult for theirs. First one is this. And this is, doesn't sit well with a lot of us. First one is this, be, will, be willing to offend, okay? Be willing to offend. Now, that doesn't mean being unloving. That doesn't mean to be ungracious or brash about your message. But it does mean at some point you are challenging someone's concept of what they believe and you're saying, maybe you're wrong. Maybe you've been wrong. Maybe this thing you're holding really dearly is not what you actually should follow. And that might be offensive. You have to be willing to offend, though. And that's really hard for anyone else willing to admit they're people pleasers. I'm definitely a people pleaser. I love people's smiles. I don't like people's frowns. Be like, what? I, why are you angry at me? But you have to be willing to offend sometimes. It's not like you don't have to be the old school preacher who's bashing the, bash, bashing the pulpit. But the message of Jesus Christ does rub up against other people's concept of what life is all about, and therefore, they might be offended by it, okay? It's not unloving, it's not brash, but a point, there is a crossroads that we come to. And I would say this, guys, as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid. Well, we might be afraid anyway. And I was talking to one of you, one of you this week, and uh, just kind of struggling, like, is this what I believe? Is it, what if I'm wrong? Especially those who are agnostics or Epicureans, if you want to call them Epicureans now and name what they believe. Um, they always come back with like, well, like nitpicky things about what about this? What about this? What about this? I think we need to push back and say, well, what if you're wrong? Like agnosticism, I can't stand agnosticism because it's essentially a rejection of everything. It's kind of a cop-out. It seems lazy to me without actually f believing in anything. Sorry to those who are agnostic in the room, but that's, my, that's what I believe. But you have to pull on it. Like, what if you're wrong? Like, what if there is something out there that you're missing? Put it back on them. That might offend them, but it also might cause them to consider Jesus. So Paul did the same thing. He says, see this to this unknown God? You guys are getting this wrong. There is a God out there who wants, who wants you in, her, in your life. Se second one is this, really quickly. Call for a response. I do this all the time. I share the gospel and then stop without inviting them to consider it. Like this, but what does that communicate? This is good for me. Might not be necessarily good for you. See, we share the gospel and said, miraculously, God changed my life. Period. But then you need to take the next steps. Like, what do you think, though? Is this something that you would want? Call for a response. It communicates that it's good for both of us. It moves from reasoning to considering. And that's where it gets risky. You don't know what they're going to say. This is why this, is, this formal preaching thing, I generally know who I'm speaking to, this is easy. 
you don't know what the response is going to be, that's when things get hard and risky and it gets awkward. Just like Paul in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Are you kidding me? That's, that's a load of crock. What's this guy on, right? Like no one wants to be, no one wants to be told that and thought they're stupid, but that's what can happen. But others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from the midst. But some people joined. Dionysius and Damaris and others joined with them. And we say, praise God. Some may have mocked me. But man, some people's lives were dramatically changed because he called for a response. So call for a response. The last one, guys, and most importantly is this. Delight in the gospel. Delight in the gospel. And I've already kind of touched on this, but this is, this is bigger than your wife being, being pregnant or getting engaged. This is that a man, a perfect man, God himself came into this world to give us hope and new life because he, def- he was the only one who could defeat death. It's the greatest news that anyone's ever going to hear, and we delight in it. And so when we share the gospel, when we preach the gospel, if it comes off as like, oh man, I have to do this, or is this a cardboard? Let me just say this. We are not merely trying to convince people that our gospel is true. So don't just take apologetics classes and think you're going to be, I'm, I'm set. We are not merely trying to convince people that our gospel is true, but that our God is good. We're not merely trying to convince people that our gospel is true, but that our God is good. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much that you are so good. You have given us this amazing message to preach. And God, let us do that. Let us as Restoration Church go into our community and informally, it's going to be messy, it's not going to be perfect, we may not even have notes, but let us preach the gospel to the people around us. They might not be expecting it. God, as people, especially as people open up their lives to us, open up with their struggle, I pray that we would respond with the hope of Jesus. This is what this is all about. God, I pray, I ask forgiveness for me. I have missed and ignored and flat out rejected opportunity after opportunity to give people hope and I have just I have rejected those opportunities forgive me but set me on a right path let me be a messenger a herald who cries hear ye hear ye I've got the best news that you could ever hear we love you we pray for all these things in your name amen